This is Ouija Boards and Midnight Marks, where a spirit board conversation sparked our spiritual evolution. I'm Shale. And I'm Cheyenne. And each week, we explore a world where there is much more than meets the eye. So pour yourself a drink and join us as we cheers to a witch in good time. Welcome back, witches! It's season two! I'm so excited. Bananas. Bananas that we're here. What are you drinking on this inaugural episode? (sighs) Well, it's not that exciting, unfortunately. So I'll just have to exude energy through my being. But I am... Good thing we're not talking about anything dark or depressing today. Yeah, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm drinking some yogi tea. Um, Oh, read me your tea bag. You you want to read my tea bag? So so I did before you said it like that. (laughs) (laughs) So it's vanilla spice tea. Um, Ooh, cozy. Yeah, it was just one of those days where I was like, you know, we're out working on the chicken coop. It's outside now. It took six of us to move it out there. (laughs) Amazing. But it's still a little cold, and so I was out there finishing painting it, and I'm freezing to death. So I was like, I need some hot, spicy, and nice. And so vanilla spice it is. Ooh, I didn't even tend to rhyme there, but I just did. <laughs> just sign me up as a poet. Um, <laughs> but the the tea bag says, may your head and your heart speak with one voice. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like that for this episode too. Um, just because I was thinking about like getting back into this space and this mindset and being, you know, in conversation with our coven more regularly and it feels like just a more authentic existence for me personally when we're also podcasting yes it brings us back to our practice and reminds us of the important things and most of all what I really appreciate from this is like the authentic genuine discussions like deep thought conversations that we have here and especially after a year of isolation holy cow it's just a good reminder to know how much that is important in our lives yeah no kidding so welcome back everyone welcome 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 we missed you so much we were like we most of you are strangers but we're like oh my gosh i feel like i'm missing or missing my family yeah it's felt both equally a very short time away but also like a complete lifetime like i was a different person in season one (laughs) We fully transformed in the matter of like four months, people. Yeah, I'm just a whole other being now, but I'm excited to grow through this this episode, this season as well. Did we end on New Year's or did we have episodes after that? I don't quite remember. We might have had one or two after that. Because I was going to say, I know we have for sure one episode that landed in 2021, but maybe we can just be like, 2020 left. I think it was like three of them because we took that extra break for Christmas. You could be right. Still, long time. Anywho, by 2020, you suck. Say la vie. <laughs> New yeah. energy, welcome in. <sighs> Do you want to know what I'm drinking? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh, how rude am I? <laughs> See, I'm already out of <laughs> I'm already out of sync. Cheyenne, what are you drinking on the other side of the table? Uh, I'm drinking today. I'm getting my golf witch on and I'm having an Arnold Palmer. 
That's hilarious. And I almost thought you said you were going to get your gallbladder out. And I was like, we did not have this conversation. <laughs> My gallbladder is intact. Hallelujah. That's always good. I like to think that I'm maybe the only golf witch in the world, which makes me feel special and cool. I mean, if it makes you feel better, I don't know of a single other golf witch other than you. So that just kind of like validates your story. I also like that I'm a golf witch who doesn't golf. <laughs> golf support witch. <laughs> um, but I've got my tea and my lemonade and I don't know what it's spiked with. Some sort of malt liquor. I'm sure. Wait, so what kind of witch would I be that I'm not technically then? Like if you're if you're a golf witch who doesn't golf, what would I be? Hmm. Well, I was going to say you could have been a kayak witch who doesn't kayak, but you kayak now. Yeah, but that's kind of fair because I'm still freaking terrified of it. Like, I don't do anything crazy. I don't go off of waterfalls like my husband does and any of that kind of wild stuff. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm like, class one, two, you know, there's a little blip in the, the river. I'm good. My kayak is definitely still an inflatable one, so. I, you know, I'm kind of leaning more that way. I've taken that bad boy through some cat threes and fours, though. It's still so thing. Like, it literally is like a cushion of, here's all the scary stuff that's happening underneath of us, but don't worry, I've got you. Yeah, I love the little, we call it a ducky. Yeah, ducky. Because it floats, but I love it. It's great. Is that why they call it a ducky? Or would you be a hockey witch? You'd probably more realistically be a hockey witch because I'm, like, the interest isn't really there, right? You're just, like, supportive and kind. No, if that was the case, we'd have to be a football witch. Because, like, my husband doesn't play hockey anymore. He just refs. Got it. Oh my God. Is he obsessed with football? And yeah, that would work because there's like all these, those conversations where he's like going off about all these statistics and whatnot. And I'm just like, yeah, this is the most interesting conversation I've ever had. But I'm also thinking about my to-do list I have to finish tomorrow. So fair for sure. This is really the content that people came here. It for is today. truly. We started with a philosophical <laughs> question and now we move on. <laughs> <laughs> and here we go. Okay. So when I was deciding which deck to use today, I think season two is going to be very tarot heavy. Hell yeah, it is. We introduce our new tarot deck in next Sunday's episode. So I thought we would kick off this season with a literary witch pull specifically because of what oh, we're talking nostalgia. about. Yeah. Something that everyone knows and loves. We're all comfortable. We'll slide back into it. And I think these women are more relevant to our topic yeah, of conversation. That's a good point. So, also in season one, I mentioned the literary witch deck a thousand times before we even used it, and I didn't want to make that same mistake in season two <laughs> by introducing the deck every single time I used it. So, here we go. We're going to grab a witch and a familiar... Oh, wait, did you do the, the shuffling sound? Because we can't do it with the other tarot deck. Oh, I shuffled. I'm used to shuffling with my new deck now, so I haven't been shuffling that way. But I will do that sound for the familiars. Okay, for perfect. You. I did pull a witch, so I'm not going to redo that because that would be too. Yeah, easy. fair. It's on episode one. <laughs> oh, that sounds so nice, though. Right? Okay, we'll do one more. This is our... ASMR. Our ASMR moment for the day. So we have pulled the lovely Janet 
frame who represents belonging. Oh. And the material, it's not really a material, but we're going to call it that, that we have pulled is the eye. So. Material girl is like playing in my head now. <laughs> yes. Janet frame. These are not in alphabetical order. I'm trying to find her page in our lovely book. Is she in our lovely book? I'm getting so stressed out. I'm going to have to cut this dead space. Oh my god, where is she? Belonging. She's not being very belonging. Table of contents. contents. I'm sorry. Janet. Janet, girl, where you at? Okay, 113. Okay, we got there. So Janet Frame is an idiosyncratic New Zealand novelist, which is a fabulous title. Um, She died in 2004, but she is the hermit of hospitals, belonging, and lost souls. A lagoon forms around Janet's every step. Her drowned sisters call out from the water at her feet. Janet puts on her earmuffs to block out the voices. Janet keeps an eel in a box next to her typewriter. When the eel shakes its box, Janet scolds it. You think you're the only one who doesn't belong? And she shows her bad teeth wickedly. Later, repenting, Janet releases the eel back into its native waters. At least some creatures can find a home. On special nights, Janet turns out the lights and sits very still until her red hair flames with bright fire. Then the fairies gather around the flame and settle into her curls. They pick through with tenderness, snacking on the crumbs and insects, and Janet beams with a rare happiness. So Janet Frame was born to a large, poor family on a New Zealand farm. Her brother had epilepsy, and two of her sisters drowned in adolescence. Misdiagnosed with schizophrenia, Frame spent most of her 20s in psychiatric wards, receiving 200 electroshock treatments and narrowly escaping a lobotomy. After her release, she pursued a solitary life, even wearing earmuffs in the privacy of her own home to block out sound, and writing autobiographical fiction about hospitalization and the displaced self. I feel like, wow, yeah, when we think about the topic we're going to discuss tonight. Yeah, oddly fitting. I definitely have chills, and you will all know why soon, I promise. We're just building anticipation. Um, I know it's going to be in the title, so they're going to know anyway, but it's fun to build. This or <laughs> should we just for shits and giggles, make a very clickbaity misleading title? Mm, we could. That would be fun. Stay tuned. What will we actually call this? We don't know yet. <laughs> so I, we have not made that decision. Um, and then the material with her, the eye represents seeking answers, seeing clearly and paying attention. Woo! I love this day. Me too. It just... Yeah. So just kind of chewing on those words and um, those meanings. Today, we're going to be talking about other women who did not belong. Have you guessed it yet? We're going to talk about Salem Witch Trials. A perfect example of misdiagnosis and hysteria and confusion. And I think Janet is, 
she's the right person to guide us through this story today. Absolutely. Okay. So we just dive right in without further ado. I think so. Well, I guess, I guess we should bring up, you know, why, why do we feel like we wanted to discuss the Salem witch trials? Excuse me. Good question. (laughs) So personally, for me personally, as an American witch, the history of the Salem witch trials is incredibly important. It's definitely a warning story that we've, you know, been taught in some form or another, just in our youth growing up in this country. But um, the Salem witch trials to me and just witch trials in general are very much still happening. So I think it's, it's really important to keep reminding both ourselves and our listeners that even though this space that we've created here is very safe and welcoming and open, that is not really the case everywhere or anywhere (laughs) for the most part. And it can be easy to get lulled into this false sense of security in our sweet, cozy little coven bubble. But people do not understand witchcraft or, you know, healing and people that live outside the norms of society in whatever way that looks, whether they're actively witches or not. Or even if they live within the Um, norms of society, but society just chooses to perceive them differently and place labels upon somebody, whether or not they've asked for them. Absolutely. I think it's, it's a good reminder of, of kindness and understanding kind of simply to me. I wear a 1692 necklace every day and that's kind of my own personal just it it helps me come back into my body. I touch it when I'm, you know, nervous or anxious. It's a nervous tick and I I like to um kind of think about how my actions are affecting the people around me specifically in those moments too and it helps kind of bring me back into my compassion. And into my understanding, especially if I'm feeling really frustrated or confused by a situation or a person, it's a good reminder that things can get out of hand so quickly when you let fear drive your bus. Yeah, I, I 100% agree, especially in like a group setting too, of course. Like it's it's really easy. We as humans are social creatures and we care about the opinion of others. We can go around and say that we don't, but we do. And when that collective mindset gets going it can actually it can be used for really really beautiful things but it can actually be really dangerous too Uh, also kind of just circling back to why I'm interested in this topic as well is and I know we've talked about this a little bit in our episode on coming out of the broom closet in season one but to me identifying with the term witch is a reclamation of all of these things that used to be demonized that I think our society is truly, truly longing for, like the collective sense of community or accessible healing, right? Like about things like midwives mm-hmm. and, and herbalism and and things like that, that used to be just for the people, but now have become something that's demonized because it takes away from profit of like healthcare in general or, or pharmaceuticals, right? And you know, just the the recognition of women, especially being pitted against one another, uh, especially during these times and, and how we've never really truly healed from that. I think we can trace back kind of the, the cattiness or the distrust that happens between women, particularly 
clear back to the witch trials. I, I think that's where all of this really kind of broke down when we used to have just such strong bonds and networks and really leaned upon one another. And I think we're starting to see a transformation. I think there's a new newer movement of women supporting women, but man, there's still a lot of healing that needs to happen in that space. And so when we have these conversations, I think it's an honoring of what was lost. And by having these conversations and keeping the acknowledgement alive of what happened during this time, it can help in our own healing and our reclamation of what, what a witch truly was. And it wasn't the... <laughs> Hollywood version, evil, demonic thing that it's been built into, but really it was it was the healers, it was the the wise women, it was community and connection, and and that's what I would really like to to bring back. Mm. Yes. So diving right in with a little bit of context to what was happening historically at the time around the witch trials and around Salem Town that would maybe have an effect on how, I mean, insane, for lack of a better word, this all got. (laughs) (sighs) So belief in the supernatural, um, and when I say supernatural, I'm speaking specifically the Puritans' belief of the devil's practice in giving certain humans the power to harm other people in return for loyalty, which like, it's not what he does, y'all. Satan. Um, <laughs> um, but that, you know, had emerged in Europe as early as the 14th century and was really widespread in colonial New England. So in addition to kind of that context of the European witch hunts, um, the harsh realities of life, in Salem Village, which is present-day Danvers, Massachusetts. Um, So Salem Village is where most of these took place. And then um, Salem Town is present-day Salem, which is, like, adjoining and adjacent and close. That's less important, but... (laughs) It's relevant. So, yeah, at that time, they had just come... I mean, they were experiencing the after-effects of a war... (laughs) Um, a British war with France in the colonies in 1689. Um, There had recently been a smallpox epidemic and they were at war with neighboring Native American tribes as well. And then actually, so, excuse me, Salem Village and Salem Town had a longstanding rivalry as well. So all things to just keep in mind. Um, There's just a a slight amount of tension going on in the area. (laughs) Yeah, teeny bit of tension. Um, You know, the witch trials are definitely fueled by residents' suspicions of and resentment towards their neighbors, as well as their, like, significant fear of outsiders. So that's just a little mental health check-in for where the people of Salem (laughs) were at the time. But this all kind of came to a head and began in January of 1692, when a nine-year-old Elizabeth Paris and 11-year-old Abigail Williams who was the daughter and niece of Samuel Paris, who is the minister of Salem Village. So I never um, realized they were so young. Very I young. They were like teenagers. No. Um, and you know why that is, is because the crucible has become such a mm. like pop culture fixture in how we interpret this, especially yes. in American culture. 
And so everybody's older in that, right? Yeah, that makes but sense. This was the work of some bored ass preteen girls, y'all. And everybody, like, we took it and ran and believed it. These are children. <laughs> Terrible children. <laughs> but they began having fits, um, which included, you know, violent contortions, uncontrollable outbursts, screaming, claims of being pinched and poked, just complete hysteria with these girls. So a local doctor, William Griggs, diagnosed them with bewitchment because... That's where science was too. So honestly, I'm kind of jelly though. Like I wish one day I could be diagnosed with bewitchment. <laughs> like, oh, it's, you're just, someone's got you under a spell. It's not, it's not anything. Here's a prescription for that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Bloodletting. Um, so after William Griggs diagnosed these girls, other young girls in the community began to experience similar behaviors. So the oldest of these girls was 20. But that was the oldest. Most of them were between 9 and 15. Um, and they included Ann Putnam Jr., Mercy Lewis, Elizabeth Hubbard, Mary Walcott, and Mary Warren. In late February, the first arrest warrants were issued for the Paris family's Caribbean slave, um, Tichuba, along with two other women, the homeless beggar, Sarah Good, and the poor elderly, Sarah Osborne, whom the girls accused of bewitching them. So women who were already on the outskirts of society, um, a beggar, the poor and the elderly, and a slave. And the Putnam family is actually very important in all of this because there's a fair amount of speculation that, um, so Tichuba uh, was the only person of these women who eventually confessed to practicing witchcraft, but there's a lot of belief that that came as a result of her being tortured by her owners into giving that confession so yeah I was gonna say um was it through or was it through torture because that seems to be a common thread in why yeah. women claim to be witches <laughs> yeah so what's interesting about about the witch trials and and the people who who confessed versus who didn't is you didn't really know which one of those options was better right um they would tell you, you know, oh, if you confess and, you know, rat everybody else out, it'll be fine. We'll let you go, you know, confess your sins, essentially. But if you deny it and you don't pass any of these trial tests that were insane, and we will get to those later, um, then they would believe you were a witch and like you were screwed either way. Right. Well, and that's why you had like this whole symptom of people pitting themselves against one another, because if you could point the finger in another direction for the hopes of saving yourself, that might help your situation. But then again, you still might end up in a worse place, but now you just have a buddy with you sort of a situation. Yeah. So the three accused witches were first brought before the magistrates and they were questioned. Um, and in the courtroom, their accusers have these displays of spasms and contortions and screaming and writhing and say, oh, she's, you know, they're pinching me, they're pinching me, you know, would essentially throw these fits in the courtroom. <laughs> so Good and Osborne initially denied their guilt, and then Tichuba eventually confessed. She claimed there were other witches acting alongside her in service of the devil against the Puritans, which definitely sparked more of that hysteria spreading beyond the community. 
But she was not the only one who confessed. Several other witches came forward and confessed and named others. And so the trials began to completely overwhelm the justice system. So I have a question. Just kind of circling back to the girls throwing fits in the courtroom. Did they like do it on demand? Is there any documentation of like, you know, would they be like, you know, bring bring one of the accused into the room and then boom, on demand, they start writhing on the floor? Because like, did nobody question that? Yes. So what's so wild about this is there was one instance specifically, um, I'm going to try to find her name. I might not have it written down here where one of the, I, it could have been, I'm not, never mind. I'm not going to give you a name if it's wrong, <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was one instance where the jury found the accused witch not guilty Okay. And then the girls started freaking out after the not guilty verdict. That's when they started having these spasms, like throwing fits, rolling around on the courtroom floor. And so the judge then decided, just kidding, that's obviously guilty. And then she was hanged the next day. Okay. So let, let's break that down a little bit because, like, if I was a judge and I was using critical thinking, which obviously <laughs> that didn't happen <laughs> at this time, critical is the operative word here. <laughs> But wouldn't you think that if a witch got away with it, the last, like, witches are smart, right? That's why they're so freaky, because we're freaking intelligent. But if a witch were to get away with this, don't you think the last thing they would do is just like, oh, cool, I'm I'm off. I got away scotch-free. I'm going to freaking, like, make her writhe on the floor again as, like, a deuces mic drop exit sort of a situation. Like, that makes no sense. You would think they would lay low or something like that if that's what they're being accused of. I just don't, I don't understand how it wasn't like, and I mean, granted, there was hysteria and stuff around this, but it's like, I don't understand why they weren't like, huh, that's weird that it seems like once we didn't get our way that all of a sudden they writhe on the floor again. Right? Yeah, it's, it's super messed up. And what's interesting about it is actually towards the end of the witch trials in September of that year, people started rebelling against it. Townspeople were like, okay, like there's no fucking way all of these people are witches. Right. We've (laughs) killed off like two thirds of the community. (laughs) Right. Like we're all like, this is getting completely out of hand. We're going, you know, we're watching people be hanged in the town square every other day. Well, Um, and how much time passed? So the the first accusation happened in like February. So the first actual hanging was not until June. Right. But the but trial started a bunch early. of people. Yeah. The trial started literally like in January. Yeah. So you have almost like a, a full term, almost a full year of this. Like it's like nine months before somebody yeah. starts pushing back on it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Tituba confessed, this is the quote from her, is the devil came to me and bid me serve him. She described elaborate images of black dogs, red cats, yellow birds, and a black man who wanted her to sign his book. Um, Black man is in quotes, meaning like demon man. She admitted that she signed the book of the beast and said there were several other witches looking to destroy the Puritans. All three of the women were put into jail after that initial trial, but the stream of accusations followed you know, for the months after, like, a waterfall, right? (laughs) 
a lot of the people accused specifically had beef with the Putnam family, which is just interesting to know. Again, critical thinking. People like, I'm not a freaking criminal justice person. I don't have a degree in that. I'm not a detective. But like, I can look through this and be like, mm, I think there's some connections here. Right? Good Lord. <laughs> yeah. So essentially, the first case, Governor William Phipps, of the governor of Massachusetts on May 27th, ordered an establishment of a special court to these specific counties to judge these trials. So the first case brought to the special court was Bridget Bishop, who was an older woman who was known around town for being a gossip and being a little bit promiscuous. And when asked if she, you know, they asked if she committed witchcraft, because that's pretty much the only question they asked. Uh, (laughs) Yes or no, check the box. (laughs) She responded, I am as innocent as the child unborn, which was not convincing because she was the first person hanged on June 10th on Gallows Hill in the middle of town. All of these records, you can literally read all of the transcripts, all of the like handwritten transcripts. They've all been transcribed. I'll put this in the show notes, Um, but you can read all of them, all of the court documents. And it kind of gives you a little bit of a headache because these are Puritans writing. So it's like overly biblical language. And also the spelling is horrific. (laughs) And probably in like really elaborate cursive too, I imagine. (laughs) Yeah. So like, I'm glad somebody took the time to type it, but even reading all of that, I could only get through little yeah I could get through little chunks at a time because it makes your brain hurt (laughs) fascinating and just absurd the things that were said so five days later a respected minister Cotton Mather wrote a letter imploring the court not to allow spectral evidence which would be testimony about dreams and visions because he was like y'all this doesn't really check out (laughs) Um, and the court completely ignored this request five more people were sentenced and hanged in july five more in august and then eight in september well and i think that's something that's like so profound about the witch trials was the like the level of validity that spectral evidence held just well and so he said about that even um um, where is it? On October 3rd, following in his son's footsteps, Increase Mather, who was then the president of Harvard, also denounced the use of spectral evidence, saying it would be better that 10 suspected witches should escape than one innocent person be condemned. So there were people around that time who were like, this is super fucked. You guys are crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but nobody was listening to them. <laughs> Which is horrifying. And wasn't it Increase Mather that like wrote a guide? on how to hunt witches basically one of them did yeah i I think i feel like it was increased because i feel like cotton was like a little bit like he was still he was still a little out there but i feel like he had a little bit more sense than increased yeah so cotton was increased right yeah so then governor phipps in response to mather's plea and his own wife being questioned for witchcraft only when his own wife was being accused did he prohibit further arrests. So, you know. Um, so that was in October 29th. So, I mean, damage had been done, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he, I mean, the end of this is he eventually pardoned everybody. Everybody who was hanged and everybody who was charged, but the damage was totally done. 19 people were hanged on Gallows Hill in the year 1692. And a 71-year-old man was pressed to death. And two dogs were also killed as being accused. I never heard about the dogs ever. 
Yeah. Isn't that weird? Two dogs were accused of be of doing the devil's work, essentially. And you know what they did? The, this is really gross. They would make a urine cake. I did Which is it. exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> and if the dog ate it, that was the test for dogs. Dogs eat their own food. So <laughs> like, I've seen test. my dog eat some questionable stuff, so... <laughs> literally terrible my dog's a witch Uh, that's all there is to it (laughs) but and i mean and that's not even everybody who died you know several people died in jail um over 200 people were accused during this time of practicing the devil's magic whatever that actually means so you know even though they all confessed their errors and you know this city of salem or the state of massachusetts actually formally apologized which wasn't until 1957 by the way so that was 250 years later um and reparations were paid to the families and you know their names were restored in good faith and and all that but i mean too little too late certainly absolutely but let's talk about what some of these tests were because they didn't just take you at your word right and they didn't just they didn't necessarily just take these children at their word either um they would test you to see see if you were a witch so there are seven specific tests that these women were oh it's just oh it's awful okay so number one was the swimming test So accused witches were literally dragged to wherever the nearest body of water was, stripped completely to their undergarments, and then they were bound, wrists to ankles, and tossed in the mother-forking water to see if they would sink or float. Because witches are believed to have spurned the sacrament of baptism, so water is supposed to reject their body and prevent them from submerging, which is where that Monty Python joke comes from. (laughs) A duck! Um, Witches float. If you have your ankles and your wrists tied together, you're gonna fucking sink. That's how water. Well, and that's one of those situations where like you're screwed no matter what, right? So if you if you exactly. survive, because if you floated, yeah. you're a witch, and they kill you or you right. drown. <laughs> it just it boggles my mind. Again, the critical thinking where it's like, but I guess when when you think about the mentality of that time, if they were you were guilty. Until you're proven innocent, which you were never going to be proven innocent if you were accused of a witch, right? So in their mind, they were getting rid of what they thought was a danger to society. And so I guess if it turned out to be the way, they were just kind of like, oh, well, you know, casualty of of that. But at least we're actually pursuing witches sort of a thing. Yeah. So they would tie a rope around your waist so they could haul you back up. Um, but many accidental drownings occurred because why would any of those people care about getting you back exactly. up in time? <laughs> so that was one of them. Um, burnings were not popular. That's a very European thing. The Puritans had very specific rules about when a body could be burned. And I think it typically was only reserved for like high treason, which I mean... The rest of these are not any better than being burned alive, so. (laughs) But the second was a prayer test because they believed that witches would be incapable of speaking scripture aloud. Specifically, the Lord's Prayer is the one that they would have people say, which I think is very funny because I remember probably in sixth grade, 
I was reading one of those ghost story books, like scary stories to tell in the dark. Those were so freaking scary. (laughs) So freaking scary. There was one in there that I remember it so vividly, but it was talking about a haunted hotel and how the woman felt like she had a ghost or, you know, she was perilous, sleep paralysis was pressed to the bed and she recited the Lord's prayer in her head. and, And eventually she was able to say it out loud and then, the louder she got, the less the pressure became. And I've never forgotten that. And I shit you not, especially when I was like working through some religious trauma in my youth, if I was like in the dark or in a really scary situation and I just like panicked, I would just start thinking the Lord's Oh yeah, I think all of us were taught that (laughs) in a scary situation. That's how you get out of it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, so that like, um, oh, sorry. That's how this one is relevant. The woman who they accused or the woman who they found not guilty and then changed the verdict she passed this test in the courtroom oh okay and then didn't because <laughs> the girls were awful again uh, critical yeah people, and so like, if she didn't sorcerer, fit anything she's able to recite the lord's freaking prayer which is like anti-witchcraft 101 or whatever and then you still like she checks all the boxes and then she still gets away or like gets a non-guilty verdict and then they start writhing on the floor i'm like how do you not piece those two together yeah i oh, get all sure. about it um, i need to talk to this judge let's like let's go have a seance <laughs> be like what the hell were you thinking like some questions uh, that would be fascinating honestly it would So there was also a touch test, which worked on the idea that victims of sorcery would have a special reaction if they had physical contact with the person who was supposedly bewitching them. So they would have the, well, actually, so touch tests played a famous part specifically in the trial of Rose Colander and Amy Denny, who were two elderly English women who were charged with bewitching a pair of young girls who had been suffering from fits that left their fists clenched so tightly that even a strong man could not pry their fingers apart, allegedly. Um, But early tests showed that they easily opened whenever Colander or Denny touched them. So to ensure the reaction was genuine, judges had the children blindfolded and touched by other members of the court. The girls unclenched their fists anyway, which suggested they were faking, but it wasn't enough, and both of the women were later hanged as witches. So none of these trials mattered. Like, yeah, you were guilty no matter what. Accused... The trial was just a, a show. Ugh. So Witch Cakes is the other one. Um, Tichuba actually famously helped prepare a witch cake to identify the person responsible for bewitching Betty Harris. So essentially after the dog ate the cake, they were supposed to like point at the witch. Which like we're trusting dogs and children. Okay. <laughs> Witches marks were another test. They would literally have these women stripped bare and publicly examined in the middle of a courtroom for any sort of unsightly blemish that they would, you know, consider the devil's mark, which is supposed to be, you know, received upon making your pact with Satan. So a lot of this is in reference to like the witch's teat, which is are thought to have a third teat or nipple where they suckle their familiars bowls or bowls <laughs> moles scars birthmarks sores anything like tattoos any weird mark you had on your body would count technically um scars like i'd be toast 
I like seriously, I can see 20 molds on myself <laughs> right now. So I'm out. <laughs> um, and then pricking and scratching test. So if witch hunters struggled to find those obvious witch marks on a suspect's body, they would resort to pricking them as a means of sussing it out. So they would literally repeatedly stab and prick the accused person's flesh until they discovered a spot that produced the desired results. So they're just making their own. Like what? What? They would also maybe be subjected to scratching by the supposed victims, which is based on the notion that possessed people find relief by scratching the person responsible with their fingernails until they draw blood. If their symptoms improved after clawing at the accused person's skin, it was seen as evidence of guilt. Because your body's healing? Yeah. Literally. (laughs) Um, And then the seventh... What the heck? (laughs) Just absurd, man. So then seven, the last witch trial test was called charging which it would also be known as like incantations uh, which basically forced the accused witch to verbally order the devil to let the possessed victim come out of their fit and then other people would utter the same words to act as a control group and the judge would then gauge whether the statements had an effect on the victim's condition so this was famously used in the witch trials of alice samuel and her husband and daughter who were accused of bewitching five girls During the proceedings, judges forced the Samuels to demand the devil release the girls from their spell by stating, as I am a witch, so I charge the devil to let Mistress Throckmorton, which is the lady's name, come out of her fit at this present. And when the possessed girls immediately stopped having fits, the Samuels were found guilty and all hanged. So it was completely subjective then and up to a judge whether or not. Yeah, up to the judge and up to the the victim i mean the supposed quote-unquote victims right? you know what i've changed my mind if I, if we do a seance i need to speak to the girls because i have a lot to say to them <laughs> i have a lot to say to them just terrible garbage girls whoa sorry my computer started playing an ad <laughs> yeah so it's just it's very sad at its core how quickly this all unraveled and how little actual evidence mattered in any of this. Well, and just the effect that it's had on society hundreds and hundreds of years later, right? Like this was 400 years ago, right? Yeah. Okay. I was like, am I doing that math? Right. But (laughs) right. The fact that, like, the hysteria really never ended there. There, Like you mentioned earlier, there's still, like, such a fear in society around even just the term witch or witchcraft. And it's, like, a very distinct definition in our culture. And it's just, it's fascinating to me that that was what was carried down, even though there was immense guilt and acknowledgement of wrongdoing through these trials. And relatively quickly after, like they kind of like after the last, I mean, the last person was hanged on September 23rd, 1692. And then by October, people were starting to be like, oh, our bad. This was probably fudged up and we did it wrong. But what's even more, not even more upsetting, (laughs) but what's also upsetting 
is because these women were accused witches, right? Accused criminals. They were hanged on Gallows Hill and then very unceremoniously dumped, um, half buried um, in the hill, like just everywhere. There are actually only, I believe, two or three marked graves that we know of. Everyone else is, is there somewhere, but nobody exactly knows where. And the only reason we have these two graves that are are known is because the families went and exhumed the bodies themselves and reburied. I was them. about to say, if it's those two dogs, so help me. <laughs> I'm gonna like flip the table and right. leave the room. <laughs> just yeah. So I just I, I I'm like, I don't really know where we go from there. But you were essentially just left out in the public to decompose. Because nobody wanted to touch you either. And it's just such a tragic end of life just to contemplate, especially when you know literally every single one of these people were innocent. And when you think about things like generational trauma and how that's handed down, you know, it just leaves such a a chasm in in a line of healing because that's something that you know, you, you couldn't really go back and rectify that. Oh, absolutely. So before we move on, there is one quote unquote, because like we've said multiple times in this, you put an ounce of critical thinking behind this and it completely unravels in a second, right? Like a quarter of an ounce. Let's not even give them that much credit. Fair, fair for sure. But people have tried to understand right like how did it get so bad so quickly to this level of intensity and there's one theory that I think is a lot of people claim that it it holds water but I think the cup is full of holes because I there's a part of me that feels like the only reason this theory exists is in an effort to excuse these young white women Mm. and explain away to kind of take a little bit of the onus and responsibility off of them. But I firmly believe that they were completely of sound mind and body in creating this hysteria. Personally, that's how I feel. Fuck these girls. (laughs) Um, But um, there was a study published in science magazine in 1976 that cited the fungus ergot um, which mm, I remember hearing in, about this. Yeah, and like rye and wheat and other cereals, which toxologists say can cause symptoms such as delusions and vomiting and muscle spasms. However, if there was in fact an ergot outbreak in the rye supply of Salem Town, it would not have only affected these children. It would have affected quite literally everybody in the town because they would all be eating the same food. And those are like the psychological effects, right? Those like, okay, delusions and hallucinations and muscle spasms. Sure, you can maybe explain that away. But ergot also has very specific physical um, manifestations, which literally include your fingertips rotting off of your body. Oh my God. Like it it eats you. It eats your skin. That's horrible. No, thank you. And there is no record of any of these girls having that kind of physical affliction. So I think the ergot excuse is bullshit. And you shouldn't hold too much faith in that one. Well, and 
And actually, it's funny that you say that because when I went to Salem, people would ask that question and the sentiment in Salem is that that theory is bullshit and has been debunked in in a couple of different ways. I don't remember exactly how, but nobody okay. really there actually believes that either. And they're all kind of on the same page as us of, no, I think it was boredom or whatever else. Just It was boredom, girls. it was patriarchy, it was sexism, it was racism. Say what it is. Like, Call it, it out. All of these horrible things, but it was definitely not a fungus that only magically affected five girls in the town. And they got their fingers, so what's up? <laughs> right. Show me their hands. <laughs> We're like the witch hunters now. Show me the marks. I know. Like, I want to <laughs> see your fingertips. <laughs> um, but let's talk about your trip to Salem. Um, I have not had the pleasure of going. I would definitely like to. But yeah, tell me what that experience was like, what you, what you did, how you felt, just kind of what that whole vibe is. Yeah. You know, it was a very interesting experience because we went there when I was really starting to, it was the year that I was really starting to claim my practice and this identity of which and, and all of that. Um, and we went kind of, it was a trip my husband and I took as our mini moon following our wedding because we still have never made it to our honeymoon yet. You know, <laughs> pandemics and shit keep getting in the way. Um, one day. One day. Yeah. And we've always wanted to visit the East Coast and what better place to go. And so we went in October. It was the week before Halloween, which was just a vibe in and of itself. But I remember kind of having conflicted feelings the whole time we were there because I don't know. I'm just, I guess I'm just going to call it what it was, but the, the, the capitalism element of Salem. Right. And, right. And so what's so interesting is that this is a place where the history is so rich. It's so documented and so well-remembered, which I can really appreciate that. But then Literally, there's just like this like culture all around what all of these people lost their lives for. And like now there's like the glorification of of the witch. And I don't know, it's it's like a really interesting thing because on one hand, it does feel like kind of an act of healing in a way where what these people were accused of and died for is now kind of celebrated and people are emboldened by it and um, people are unapologetic about being a witch in that community. And it actually draws witches now, right? Like, like every witch dreams of going to Salem. <laughs> but then there's definitely that very touristy capitalism mindset of just making a profit off of, in my mind, one of the darkest tragedies that ever happened in not only our country, but the world. Yeah. And so it, it's hard to kind of walk the streets with that mindset because, you know, I do think as somebody who, who walks this path, you can't go there, not feel a sense of grief and, yeah. and not feel pain and heartache and anger and frustration and all the things that we're feeling tonight. And just constantly want to ask yourself why, like, why did this ever happen here? And so it's hard to not not see that, but also want to celebrate the the witch and partake in that. Um, so it's a very, I don't know, it, that's the only way I can describe it is like a very conflicting feeling, but being able to also appreciate, hey, here's a here's a community now where we celebrate all of the weirdness and the diversity and 
all of the things, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, so there's like, there's, there's healing that's occurred. There's healing that needs to still occur in that community. But I do remember having a very profound moment because they have a very beautiful memorial in um, the center of the city that acknowledges all of the people who lost their life. And I remember, you know, walking up to Bridget Bishop's name, hers being listed as the first one and having the opportunity to like lay down flowers and just sit there for a minute and feel their presence with you. And I don't know, it's, it was a very grief stricken moment, but it was also an opportunity for me to be grateful that I can be in this space in the present moment and be openly to an extent, I would say not fully, um, but be able to, pursue what interests me and be able to want to be part of this collective sense of healing that we all need, but feel grief that they weren't able to be in that same space, you know? So it's, it's a very long rambly answer, but it's, I don't feel like it's something you can really describe until you go there and experience it yourself. But I will say it was, it was fucking awesome being there the week before Halloween. Because like it was like you know the the autumn vibes are in the air and everybody there goes hard for Halloween like you think we go hard just in general in the United States for Halloween but Salem is like next level and you know you get to visit like the Hocus Pocus house and and all of that and yeah so that was that was very fun and thrilling to be part of that experience but yeah there's a heaviness there no doubt and that's. I can't describe it any other way other than just heavy, 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 heavy. grief. Yeah. Ugh. It is heartbreaking. Really. I mean, there aren't other, I mean, grief is just most <laughs> grief and anger. Obviously. Right. This is definitely an explicit episode. I've sworn a lot. Uh, That's why we have the little E. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, but, oh, but it's so hard not to get so caught up in your feels. <laughs> when you're talking about things like this, especially when you know it it feels like we're far removed from it, but we're really not because people are being persecuted all over this world and this country for, I mean, midwifery and <laughs> um, herbal medicine and homeopathy, you know, right. and, and all of these, these very beautiful, genuine, healing, helpful, community-minded practices that are still so just misunderstood and demonized. And it's, um, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with claiming the word witch. And it's cute and it's trendy on Instagram. And I've fallen into that trap too. I'm definitely not trying to shame anybody for that. But it, it comes with a heaviness that if you actually are going to walk this path and do this work, you have to acknowledge and, and pay your respects to, to all of these people who've, who've not survived. And, and many of them through no fault of their own for not actually being practicing healers or witches, however you want to phrase that. So a lot of, I guess, just gratitude for, for all of the loss that these communities have experienced, particularly communities of color as well. Well, and I think it's, it's heavy, heavy is a good word. Yeah. And I think that's what I appreciate so much about the community members of Salem, not letting go of that history, 
because this is absolutely an event that we should acknowledge and remember and not ever sweep under the rug because like you said it's so easy like we're 300 right <laughs> 300 years yes. into the future and still seeing a lot of these dynamics happening all around the world and and especially in our country and so it is something we need to keep reminding ourselves of and talking about and coming back to and really making an acknowledgement of we have a responsibility to not ever come back here yeah absolutely to actually learn from our mistakes. And I think it's a good reminder too of what happens when we don't speak up, right? And what happens when we we just kind of let things unfold and the danger oh, the danger from that. I mean, to give us a really awful real world example that happened this week. Um, is everything that the Asian American community, well, and Asians in general, but are experiencing in our country right now with the woman who was assaulted in New York City, where the doorman, there were three people standing within feet of her and they closed the door. Like the, that, that bystander effect is, is very real, but we have to be better. Like we just have to be, Um, there's too much at stake to sit by and not not speak up when we see injustices happening or not put ourselves in front of those injustices and try to get in the way because this is I mean we have so much work still to do in this country and all over this world as I mean when it comes to judging people at you know face value at the color of their skin at their religious practices at you know what they where and what they eat and how they identify and how they exist in this world quite simply is themselves. Um, there's, there's a lot of work to be done still. And I think these lessons, we can take these lessons from the witch trials and, and apply them and also see where we're making the same mistakes. Yeah. And, and kind of circling back to what you said about, you know, this path being trendy I think that's something we need to keep remembering in and of our, in, in in and of itself is that this is not an easy path to walk because it is so much about collective healing. And if you truly want to pursue that, you have to look in the mirror sometimes and it's not always fun to see what is reflected back. And a lot of that internal work must be done for you to really have an effect on, on the broader community and, and, the collective healing that we all need. Um, So it can be fun to, you know, post pictures on Instagram and we definitely do that. You see our page. We love to kind of play up the the aesthetic, but it's not an easy path to walk when you need to acknowledge where you, maybe your own hysteria is like built in or where systems have um, conditioned you to believe a certain way and have perceptions of other people in your community. And that can be difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But it's easier in contexts like this. It's easier when we speak up, when we get together, when we go protest, you know, when we join together as a coven, as a community, Um, there is strength in numbers and you are not alone in this fight. And I think that's an important thing to remember, too. I mean, community is the first word that comes to my mind when I think about Right. Honestly, it truly is. Um, It is all about supporting everyone else around you. 
and how all of your talents and skills can benefit the greater good. And I just, I think there's a lot of beauty in that healing too. And that collective, that collective awakening and that desire to, to grow and to be better. It's, it's not easy, but it's easier together. And I'm grateful that you are all on this journey with us as well. Yes. Mm. And I hope that this also, you know, this can serve as a reminder of the power that comes with being unapologetic in who you are, right? Because there was labels and I don't even know if labels is the right word, but there was beliefs that were put upon people in the situation and they were silenced. And mm-hmm. they, I think that's probably what makes this so heartbreaking is that they were never taken for their word or they were never believed or listened to or heard. And I would like to believe that that's something that they would want future generations to take with them is to be heard, be seen, you know, don't, don't allow others to, to define your story for you. Hmm. Cause they're fucking yeah, wrong. <laughs> they don't and they use shit. crazy evidence to tell you otherwise. So <laughs> crazy evidence. Yeah. I almost feel like that's a good, a good perwitchin slip too, of just like, stand in your power be heard (laughs) and speak up like this is your perwitchin slip to speak up when you see injustice make your voice known it's not easy I'm the first person to admit that it's not easy and I have failed it in my personal life many times and I am always trying to be better but it it means having those hard conversations it means calling out friends and family specifically it's more than just sharing you know, information on Instagram in the vacuum of people who, you know, already agree right. with you. <laughs> um, it's about going to that wedding and looking family members in the eye and being like, hey, you know what? Actually, that's not okay. Like, you cannot treat people like that or say things like that. That is not how this works. Um, so I, I would invite all of us to take that per witch and slip to be a little bolder in our activism particularly right now. And again, circling back to remembering that you have community and that, you know, there's people to lean on to help you in having those conversations. And, and I think it's also good to remember kindness, as Cheyenne mentioned in, in the beginning of this, you know, your activism doesn't have to be mean or bullying or anything like that um there's a time and a place for when we do need to st- stand strongly of course I'm not saying that but Remembering that even being kind can be an act of resistance in and of itself. Mm, Absolutely. And that kindness for yourself too. turning that compassion inwards is really important, especially, you know, in this type of work, in this type of path, you can't, you can't possibly give back if you're not filling your own cup first. So I, I also give you perwitchin to do the things you need to do to check out when you need to check out so you can refuel and come back stronger and ready to fight. Burnout is very real in this community as well. And it is more real, I think, for people of color. So be mindful of what you're considering burnout because it is it is definitely our job. And I'm speaking to my fellow white women right now to 
um, to do the heavy lifting. Like it's, it's beyond time. It is our turn. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Cheers to that. That's the energy we're bringing into season two. (laughs) Season two coming in hot. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Ouija Boards and Midnight Marks. If you're having a witching good time, we hope you'll help us to grow this little coven. You all know it's us against AI in this algorithm eat algorithm world, so please help us out. Please like, rate, and subscribe anywhere you're listening to us. Also, we want to connect with our spooky, marg-loving friends out there, so please like and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Links for those profiles will be in the show notes. And hey, be sure to tell us what you're drinking tonight. We love you all so much, which is cheers. <laughs>